Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. You know, I wasn't going to talk more about the markets. I was going to leave it there from yesterday. And what are we expecting? We're going to hear this, you know, on Friday when we get the jobs numbers. But man, uh, progressives going to do progressive things. And this was Rashida Tlaib when she's not hating Jews really pushing once again this idea that you making a living that's a problem thank you so much mr chairman thank you chair powell for being here uh, you have a lot of economic you know pro, uh, projections economic projections uh, various data um various uh reports that are coming out how much and you've studied inflation right i mean obviously it's your number one priority right now how much is inflation impacted by these three things, corporate profiteering, executive, egregious executive pay, and the use of share, you know, stock buybacks. Now, let's make uh, an an assumption here. Let's start with a baseline, because I always love that. I love starting at a place. I am not an economist, but I know some economists who are listening, and I guarantee you I get text messages in about 13 seconds, and I will try and put them on the air in 25 seconds. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, so good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. There is no radio I love more than the radio I go totally off script, because this is not what I was going to talk about. This, this video just boop, popped right up in my feed, and I'm like, hot diggity, I'm in. Inflation impacted by corporate profiteering, executive egregious executive pay, and the use of stock buybacks. Now, you understand that an economist engages with a thing we call data. And data is, is, is numbers that come from gathering information. And when you gather information, you gather all the particulars, you're able to come up with possibly a a reason why inflation is so high and certainly a number for inflation. You can come up with, based on sales data here and jobs data here, and you put it all together and you do what the economists do and they take off their shoes and they pull out an abacus and the next thing you know, boom, they got a number. I mean, these are people who are very, very smart people. They could do more than one thing at one time. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. So you see, economists got this covered. But Rashida Tlaib... A progressive's progressive wants to know how inflation is affected by corporate profiteering. You couldn't define corporate profiteering if your life depended on it. You mean a company making a profit. So inflation is impacted by a company 
being successful. If only the companies weren't successful, well, then we wouldn't have this inflation issue. Well, no, 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 Tony. See, it's not about the profit. It's that the profit is there, and it pays the executive too much money, not just a ridiculous amount of pay, an egregious amount of pay. So if if I I didn't pay that one person that money, inflation would go down? Precisely. Well, what do I do with the money then? Well, you, you spend it on all the other employees. So instead of spending it on one person, I spend it on, let's say, 10 people, but I still spent the same amount of money, and isn't inflation therefore equally impacted as if I had paid the one person? All right, we're done with that. You think for a second, Rashida Tlaib has any mind whatsoever? Did she ever ask herself what these questions mean before she said a single word about them? It is beyond recognition and the use of stock buybacks man they hate it when corporations engage stock buybacks but let's hear what uh um jerome powell i believe it is uh chair yes they're talking to jerome powell chairman of the federal reserve let's see what he has to say so i'm i don't have numbers but i, w- I would say in the case of executive pay and well, in the case of share purchases I-, I can't think of how it would affect inflation case of executive pay, that would be very small in terms of, uh, of the broader economy. In terms of profits, though, the way I think about that is <clears throat> um, profits are high. The places where profits are really high is places where, where there are shortages and, and supply chain issues. And as those things get better, as they are, you're going to see uh, inflation come down and even prices come down. And you'll see corporate margins come down there. And that'll be part of how inflation comes down. Translation. People who are engaging really high uh, um, uh, profits is because they have a product in short supply. You have supply chain issues with getting that to the people. So therefore, we're allowed to charge more for it. You see, supply and demand are real. Just like the state of Israel, supply and demand are real. Oh, that felt good. That felt, come on, a little applause? Nothing? Really? Come on, people. That was gold. But once you have better supply chain access and you're able to get more goods to the market, you will see those profits come down because more people have access to things, so the prices come down, which, of course, is better for the, the, the people. A rational answer to what is a radical leftist irrational question. Oh my gosh, she's not done. So does that corporate profiteering does impact inflation? You you don't have any stats percentage-wise how much of it? Because you seem, you know, I I, I really paid attention to your testimony in the Senate hearing yesterday. And there was a lot of conversation about, you know, my neighbors and residents' wages and so forth. You know, they're finally starting to see a little bit more closer to possibly getting fair wages. It's not even far enough. But I don't know if the feds is paying closer attention to monopolies, you know, corporate profiteering and executive egregious pay. All of it, even the stock buybacks, you're saying all of that aside 
you're focused more on wages and increasing the interest rate. Than- Hold on a second. Go back. She has decided that supply and demand is corporate profiteering. She has decided that corporate demand, I'm sorry, the public demand, we want more, we want this toilet paper, and we're willing to pay an extra nickel for it, an extra quarter for it, an extra dollar for it. That's the profiteering. And that's what's egregious. You understand what an anti-capitalist we're talking about here, right? She's proud of herself, and she's proud of this position. She believes that being on, on, on this side of the conversation is something that's moral. It's, it is something else. To witness the, 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 the sheer audacity of, of their of their argument. And their argument is predicated on the idea that you should not be able to profit. That profit is in and of itself the enemy. And that you 100% should not be allowed at all to be successful. That success in and of itself is the enemy. If there's anybody who knows what it's like not to be successful, it's the Biden administration. Now, the Biden administration does not believe this. The Biden administration does not believe this at all. The Biden administration believes that they are radically successful. It's a great example of what perception is all about. The Biden administration, through the American Rescue Plan, did not rescue America. What happened is inflation got exacerbated. Interest rates had to go up to try and tame the inflation that the overspending and the lack of supply brought us. The Biden administration doesn't stop spending because then they engage this ridiculous idea of something called the Inflation Reduction Act, which never reduced inflation, and they knew it. It was a green energy bill, a green bill uh, in more, more generally. And that was more spending. Now they talk about tax increases to uh, increase spending on Medicare. There's an argument that tax increases would actually slow the economy because you're taking money out of the system. It's a fascinating argument. And to win that argument, you have to say the tax increases are good. I'm not that guy. They are. They consider these things wins. The Democratic Party is convinced that under Joe Biden, they have a series of wins. And they'll always say it's historic this and historic that. It's, it's always historic. You have to ask yourself if it is indeed a win. There's been a whole conversation about Washington, D.C. and a crime law. This has been a huge subject where Joe Biden has 
now gotten himself to understand that maybe if the District of Columbia was changing its criminal code and was going to really, you know, look at at, at them changing how they would would go after, do away with mandatory minimums for violent crimes, um, they'd be like, ah, we don't need this. Um, it would have grown the city's violence problem, which is massive. And Democrats were like, oh, yeah, the, the D.C. should be allowed to do what they want. Why would anybody be opposed to D.C. making laws that state uh, that we don't really go after criminals and we don't care about the criminal element? Ah, oh, my audio's not playing. That's too bad. Because it was Corinne Jean-Pierre who said that this law is a great example of why D.C. needs statehood. D.C. needs statehood because of this. It's one heck of a take. It really and truly is one heck of a take. And now what you have is a, a major, major change from Joe Biden. Scalise was arguing, Steve Scalise, Louisiana House Majority Leader, that had the Washington Criminal Code overhaul taken effect, it would have increased the city's safety problems. Biden wanted to leave D.C. alone. Now Biden is taking a look at, well, how can we make sure this gets um, changed? Because it's Congress that decides what goes on in D.C., not D.C., which is why the people of D.C. have often said, you know, taxation without representation. It's an interesting argument, to say the least. D.C. is not getting statehood, even though Corinne Jean-Pierre was desperate to share this story. That they need statehood. One could argue that this, this crime bill conversation, this, this radicalness uh, that uh, the D.C., uh, city council was going for a a, a legislation that would weaken punishments for carjacking and robberies that the Democrats were in favor of, that Biden was in favor of until he wasn't. Democrats will argue, well, these aren't the big things. These are the little things. The big things are, of course, the green this and the energy that and, and, and look at how uh, we're fighting in Ukraine. And they'll look at those things as the big things. It's a solid argument for them. I'm not telling them not to have that argument. I am saying that it's not an argument for America because America does not look in the vacuum, nor, nor should it. It looks at the total. I'm a guy who looks at Trump and the idea of tariffs, and I say to myself, uh, tariffs are taxes. Tariffs will always be taxes. But if tariffs are a way to bring China or other nations to the table to get a better trade deal, well, sure, give it a shot. I'm a rational person. Do I think it's still valuable? No. No. Absolutely, positively don't. I could take a look at policies and say, well, this worked and this didn't. The Biden people want you to believe through their proxies and that the only thing you can look at is this and not look at something like this flip-flop on the crime bill. You're going to take a look at all of it. Like rational people. You're not going to buy into their argument. You're going to utilize your own. You're going to ask yourself, 
whether or not the country is better off nearly, you know, two and a half years after Biden got elected. You're going to ask yourself whether or not there is success or there is failure. Now you say to me, Tony, this is politics 101. Of course they're going to tout the things they find successful. They don't accept that some of their things were not successful. No, no admitting of it at all. And I think that's where the issue is. You have to be honest. Okay, that didn't work as well as we liked, but this worked, this worked. Now we're going to do this and do that. And they want you, through media proxies, to not even know that some things didn't work out. How dare you mention those things? I just think it's important to share. I think it's important to share all of it. It's a big day for the all of it sharing. I'm Tony Katz. So Americans want Biden to be more aggressive with China. Um, I'm not sure what they're looking for and what they mean by it. It was a poll, and I, and I, and I shared it quickly yesterday, but it's been on my mind. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, this is a poll from the Trafalgar Group. 57.6% of respondents said the government should be, quote, more aggressive in leading a global coalition to contain China. Now, I'd said at the time, I don't need a global coalition. I'll go unilaterally. I don't need to go multilaterally. Let other nations follow us. But I think the the part that has caused me to re- re- reflect on it is... They want us to be tougher? Americans want to be tougher on China? What does that actually mean? Broken down by party affiliation, it was more than 76% of Republicans, nearly 40% of Democrats, 54% of independents. It was 1,082 likely general election voters And it was a margin of error of 2.9 points, which is, well, nice stuff in terms of what you want from a poll. But what do they think we should do? Because if I I was in office and I saw a poll like that, if if I thought that I was a guy who was dependent upon polling, that's an opening to make a lot of moves. But I don't believe the moves should be tough guy moves. And I don't think the moves as of yet should be military moves. The moves should all be, how do we move another 300 companies manufacturing out of China and somewhere else? How do we aggressively and with rapidness starve them of resources? As far as I'm concerned, that's what this is saying. Can I turn this polling around and say, okay, we're going to be tougher on China. You know what that means? You're going to pay more for T-shirts. And you're going to pay more for, for your weirdo electronic gear. You in or you out? I need you in. America needs you in. Your children and grandchildren need you in. The future needs you in. Humanity needs you in. You'll pay more. We'll all pay more. But hot damn, are we going to be better off in the long run? Because that's where you got to get the buy-in. Things will cost more. And you know what? It's, it's worth it.
This poll to me is super interesting. I know I never believed just one poll, but I played, well, what if it was real? What could you do with it? And the answer is not the stuff that people would assume top line. What's going on with the COVID story? That's next. You can't touch this. I think that there's a number of issues. Uh, Clearly, vaccine hesitancy is one of our greatest threats. As you know, as CDC director, I took it on head on when I found out that, you know, we had over 360,000 people die of flu in the decade before I was CDC director and and less than 50 percent of American public takes the flu vaccine. So try to get over that. I do think, and this is different, I do think one of the ways you promoted vaccine hesitancy, though, that wasn't the intent. I do think when we got into vaccine mandates, that helped reinforce vaccine hesitancy. So vaccine hesitancy is a threat. We need to, we, we need to address it. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. And I, I, I think that's important to, to also note, vaccine hesitancy um, has, been, has been promoted actually by some members of this committee is actually a very dangerous, has been said by you and many doctors across the country. Yeah. But before we get to excoriating Mr. Redfield there, what about what he said about mandates? about how mandates led to vaccine hesitancy. Why, Representative Garcia, shouldn't we note this? I don't think you can have any more COVID conversations without being completely and totally honest and clear and covering all of the data. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Uh, You have the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic holding hearings, and one of the people that you hear from is Dr. Robert Redfield, who is the former director of the CDC. And he said a bunch of things, but I thought this was one of the the big ones in a conversation about gain-of-function research. Again, I think the people that are advocates for gain-of-function research do believe that by doing this research, they somehow get ahead of the curve. Um, I'm of the point of view that we don't need to make pathogens more transmissible or more pathogenic in order to get ahead of the curve. We can begin to deal with those pathogens as they evolve. I don't think this should be a decision made by scientists alone. This is a societal decision. There should be a broad debate about whether this research is really necessary. Now, you understand how absolutely controversial that statement is. That statement is so amazing, I was stunned to hear Dr. Redfield say it. And first, I I must admit, I do have a slight variation, a slight difference in the idea of -of gain-of-function research than the doctor. I get it. I'm not a medical professional. This is only an opinion. And Dr. Redfield's point is made that we don't need to make pathogens more transmissible. But gain-of-function research which is the idea that you take this this virus or this strain of whatever, and then you see what ways it can be manipulated so you can see what it does so you know how to deal with it. I argue that there are things that doctors can tell you, scientists can tell you, um, uh, that have been created of value through gain-of-function research. I could equally state to you, and we could both agree, that there is a serious amount of evil that can be done through these things. So what if we split the baby and we said gain-of-function research, just not in China? The issue is that $600,000 went from the NIH and Dr. Fauci to this guy, Peter Drazik, Dazik, D-A-S-Z-A-K, 
of a group called EcoHealth Alliance, and EcoHealth Alliance doled out the dollars, and $600,000 went to the Wuhan Virology Lab, where of course they were engaged in gain-of-function research, where of course it leaked from that lab because communists are incompetent, and then of course they covered it all up, which was the real crime and the proof that they didn't care who around the world died as long as they were covered. You want to know how duplicitous and evil and dangerous the Communist Chinese Party is? There you go. It's not that they leaked it on purpose as a bioweapon. It's that once it was out, they said, okay, buy up all the PPE, the personal protective equipment, keep everything that we need, lock down what we have to, and then don't say a word to anybody else. Don't tell anybody the truth. Don't let anybody investigate. Oh, and if people want to fly out of the country, that's cool by us. Let them fly to Italy. Let them fly to Europe. Eventually, this thing will spread, but we'll be covered. They knew it was transmissible. They knew it was contagious. They said nothing. When they knew they had a problem, they didn't inform the world. They didn't try and protect the world. They said F the world, how do we make this work for us? It was a two-phase conversation. The first phase, the rest of the world. F these people. The second phase, how do we make it work for us? That's how it went down. That's how it went down. But the part of, of Redfield's commentary that matters so much is when he states that this should not be a decision made by scientists alone. I don't think this should be a decision made by scientists alone. This is a societal decision. There should be a broad debate about whether this research is really necessary. That's an incredible statement from Dr. Redfield. And and I, I would... Uh, push everyone, commend everyone to applauding the statement because this is not the statement of the elitist. No matter what you think of Dr. Robert Redfield and his handling of COVID, etc., this statement should be applauded because he's saying we should decide. We should have a say. We should ask ourselves in every corner Should we be a country that funds this type of research? After all, look at the damage that it's done. I would still vote to fund this type of research, but only in the United States. Because my faith in U.S. scientists, my faith in a U.S. laboratory, my faith in our systems remains. And if you say to me, Tony, how can you have faith? My answer is, I got to have faith in something, and I chose this. Everything's a disaster. Everything's falling apart. You can't trust a damn thing anywhere. Honestly, I need something. And, and for whatever you want to say about the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, and I don't argue that it doesn't have issues, and I find it incredulous. I'm incredulous about the idea that people say you're not allowed to discuss issues with the vaccine. Of course you are. Of course you can. The fact that someone says you can't is crazy town. Um, it really still is a feat that they saw this virus. They, 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 they were given the money, right? The, the real, real 
uh, power of what Operation Warp Speed did under President Trump, uh, what it did is that it said, hey, we're not in your way. Get to work. And they built a vaccine. Imperfect agreed. But for the vast majority of Americans, it did lessen symptoms, which kept them out of hospitals. I, I, I won't deny the data. I equally won't deny the data that myocarditis is real. And clearly, for far too many, there was not enough testing of this vaccine. And now we can get into what happens. One of the reasons for that was about scare tactics as opposed to rationality. Maybe, just maybe, it wasn't as much of a rush to get people the vaccine as they said it was. Now, some people say, Tony, did you see how full these hospitals were? Yes, I did for certain age groups and certain comorbidities. But the idea that you would want 33-year-old healthy men to take the vaccine is crazy town. The fact that you want pregnant women or women of pregnancy age to take the vaccine is nuts. I will tell you, I have friends who's had their kids get vaccinated and I really do hope well for their future. I really do. Um, Nope. Nope. If it means my kid can't go to a certain college, okay. Small price to pay. I will let the data come back on that one. If you were a 50-year-old man and you weren't having any more kids and you looked at the data and you looked at your health and said, ah, the vaccine might work for me, okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that whatsoever at all. I think the vast majority of people who got the vaccine didn't end up with an issue. That's different than the people who refused to recognize that there were people who took the vaccine and ended up with an issue. But the idea that we force vaccines on the, on the healthy for a, for a disease clearly not affecting their age group, madness. And what happened was a total lack of involvement from the people. It was government force from the top down. And then in conjunction with business, the true definition of fascism, business working with government, you will do this or you won't have a job, you won't have a livelihood, you'll go, you'll go hungry, you'll be homeless, etc. You have to take this. You're not allowed to get an education unless you take this. Those should be societal decisions. And they weren't. They were top-down fear decisions. That's why I think this is such an important statement from Dr. Robert Redfield. And he, he continued. And if so, we should decide how to do it safely and responsibly. I remind people, when I was CDC director, one of the most difficult things I had to do as a 20-something-year Army vet was shut down Fort Detrick. It wasn't very popular. These guys, people were my friends. I knew them. But our inspection showed that they were cutting corners in their biosecurity requirements. And I felt that uh, we weren't going to take that chance with the Frederick community and beyond. And so I shut the lab down for four to six months until they corrected their biosecurity. So I think this is much more complicated than people think. And if we are to go down that path, I would argue there's a few labs in the world that should be with multiple redundancy 
in containment to do this. But I'm not convinced it's to an advantage, and this is why the Wall Street Journal op-ed I did. I strongly recommend that we have a moratorium on gain-of-function research, similar to what we had in the Obama administration. That's a rational, cogent argument. And no matter who you are, no matter your politics, you can hear that from Dr. Robert Redfield. Sit down at the kitchen table, sit down at the bar still, and be like, what do you think? That is a look, I, I, I think that there are places where we can do this that have uh, the redundancies and contingencies in place to be able to handle this kind of research. That said, I don't think we should do it. Man, now he's giving you something to think about, something to talk about, something to share about. Isn't this exactly what we want? Now, Brad Wenstrup, who is a Republican out of, I think he's out of Pennsylvania, is asking uh, the, the questions here and goes a little bit into the gain-of-function conversation. In, in one sentence, can you provide a definition of gain-of-function research? And I, and I say that because there becomes a little semantics sometimes, I believe, yeah. within the scientific community of what, what, what is a chimera and what is gain-of-function. Yeah, I think it's to take a pathogen and try to increase one of two things or both, to increase its transmissibility or its pathogenicity. I disagree with some of my colleagues at NIH to say the definition is restricted to a pathogen that's already a pathogen. If I make a non-pathogen pathogenic, that's gain of function. So in your expert opinion, was the Wuhan Institute conducting gain of function research on Absolutely. coronaviruses? Thank you. I mean, and that's just, that's just the, the mic drop right there. By the way, it's, it's Representative Brad Wenstrup, but it's also Dr. Brad Wenstrup. Now, a podiatrist, I, I believe, by trade, but still. But dear Lord, in your expert opinion... That's gain of function. So in your expert opinion, was the Wuhan Institute conducting gain of function research on coronaviruses? Thank you. I mean, that's just, it's just right there. That's the former head of the CDC. No matter what you think of his time in the CDC under Trump, man, that was rational. And maybe something we could sit down and work with. Should we be doing this? Maybe we got to hear about the good that can be done. Maybe we got to hear about other problems that we haven't even thought of yet. It would be a pleasure to hear those debates. I will do what I can to bring them to you in the days and weeks ahead. I'm Tony Katz. Is secession talk in Texas again, which I get because if I lived in Texas, it's all I'd talk about. I live in Indiana. I talk about it way too much. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What is going on? Find everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. TonyKatz.locals.com. There is a lawmaker who wants to put to a vote the idea of the Texas Independence Referendum Acts or Texit. Get it? Like 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 Brexit, and now now it's now it's Texit, and so it's a conversation of why are we a part of all of this madness? Why don't we just walk away, be done with it? The Texas Constitution is clear that all the political power resides in the people. This, according to Representative uh, Brian Slayton, S L A T O N, 
of Houston, after decades of continuous abuse of our rights and liberties by the federal government, it's time to let the people of Texas make their voices heard. So it's HB 3596. A majority of yes votes, a committee will be established to investigate the feasibility of independence from the union and propose options and potential plans for independence to the state legislature. There are people who think that this is, of course, madness, that this is crazy talk. I am not one of those people. Well, Tony, we fought an entire war about whether or not one could secede from the union. Well... Texas is different because as I know Texas, they've got this written into their constitution. Others read this as the ability of Texas to actually split into five states as opposed to just being one state, which is different than being able to secede. Now, there are people who will talk about a case called Texas versus White. An 1868 Supreme Court case establishes that states cannot unilaterally secede from the union this follows the conversation of the idea we need a national divorce that was marjorie taylor green remember she's she said that thing right there um a couple things if if I, if I may texas is not going to secede from the union i said i like the conversation why it's a reminder that not everybody is happy being abused and where, one of the places we see the abuses, for example, Eastern Oregon, which is desperate to be a part of something called Greater Idaho. They want to be free. They don't want to be subjects to these mad people who live in Portland. And very much so, the people of Texas don't want to be subject to the mad people in Washington, D.C. They don't want it. They don't want to be told they have to accept everything happening at the border too bad for you. They want to be able to fight. I like people who want to fight. And I think they should have the right to do so. So, I like the conversation. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz Today.